Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for making time to be here with us on this Wednesday edition of Mwango Spaces. It's not every day that we get to have a midweek session to discuss some of the issues that are affecting this little corner of East Africa and the way money moves around in our little corner of the country. My name is Raman Yang. I'm a business journalist. I will be your host for the next hour and a bit. We'll be focusing on subsidies today. We'll be discussing something that has been in the public limelight for the better part of a year now, subsidies on fuel, subsidies on food, subsidies on fertilizer. Are they affordable? Are they sensible? Do they actually make sense? Can we afford them? If not, are there different ways perhaps in which you should be thinking about subsidies? Are they, for example, pure anathema? Or maybe there's a little place for them in how we run this little economy of ours in Kenya. We'll be exploring that in a bit more detail over the next hour or so. We have an excellent, excellent panel lined up for you. Today, let me start by introducing Dr. Lucy Maloney. She's a senior lecturer of mathematics and actuarial science at Strathmore University. She's also the head of the Mathematical Finance Unit at Strathmore Institute of Mathematical Sciences. She's currently a volunteer and consultant at the Actuarial Academy of East Africa. With us tonight as well, we have Professor XN Iraqi, academic analyst, regular commentator on the Kenyan economy, management and economic theory. He's an associate professor at the University of Nairobi, Faculty of Business and Management Sciences. To both of you, welcome. Thank you very much for giving us your time over the next hour and a bit. Perhaps I should start by the basics, because for some of our listeners who may not necessarily be economically inclined, I guess we should start with that very question. How do we define what subsidies are? Dr. Modoni, on to you. Crash course in Econ 101. What are subsidies? What different forms do they come in? When we talk about subsidies, the way we are supposed to look at it is sometimes we can have a public body or we can have a government or an institution. The term subsidy doesn't necessarily mean it's a government. It could be even a public body or it could be even a business, for example. What happens in that particular case is that some money is kept aside or put aside. And this is supposed to boost the prices of of particular commodities to shield the person who is buying or the consumer. For example, if the cost of production of a particular item is very, very high, and normally what happens in that scenario is that the producer will transfer that particular cost to the consumer. But in the event that this particular product that has been created is very essential to the people or to a group that a particular organization is targeting, then what they do is that they say, okay, let's do this. Let's not transfer the entire cost to the consumer. We can give you this particular amount of money or we have set aside this particular money for you. So we will pay you. And then now the consumer, therefore, we will pay less than it would have been if we did not have that particular amount set aside. So that is what you can call crash costs for introduction to subsidies. Just going back in terms of economic history, at least in Kenya, you have direct subsidies. So we're essentially paying for something like what we're doing fuel now, right? Consumers go to the pumps, they pay five shillings, 40 cents per litre of diesel, kerosene, and petrol. That goes into a fund that's then used to pay off oil marketing companies a little later. But there's also the argument you can make about indirect subsidies, right? You've got government saying we're foregoing this specific potential revenue 
in order to spur demand for something. And the one example that comes to mind, which a lot of our Kenyan listeners will be familiar with, will be what Oskimonia did as finance minister back in 2008, when he cut taxes on small displacement motorcycles, fast forward 10, 20 years, and now we have an explosion of border borders all over our streets. But are there specific instances in our economic history where subsidies have achieved their intended objectives? Because their history so far does seem to be just littered with failure. Well, the limited examples I can look at, for instance, in the items we are interested in today, we are looking at agriculture, that is made subsidies, we're looking at fertilizers, we're looking at fuel ETC, ETC. When you look at the past of how subsidies have worked, to be honest, I do not think they have been effective. They have not met their mandate. For instance, if you're looking at food subsidies, for example, or fuel subsidies, especially in Africa and Kenya in particular, they have a tendency of edging out small players. What that means is that when you look at fuel subsidy, for example, when we started is that um, it targeted a particular number of a particular number of petrol stations or energy producers and therefore these particular companies that benefited from the subsidy or were shortlisted to benefit from subsidies were able to edge out the smaller players so in essence it created a picture when we have a few players in a market where they have the power to control the prices so when you look at such an example or when you look at uh, what would happen now, particularly in May subsidy, and even just the subsidy that was given the other day before elections of the FLA, Unga, we noticed that, yes, we were told the Unga is going for 100 shillings, but how many people were able to access this particular product? So it created hoarding. So the millers were able to get their money. And as a matter of fact, we've been reading that they weren't paid. So we get people who benefit from the subsidies, they hoard them. And once the subsidy is removed, then the gain. And it's unfortunate that when we look at Africa scenario, we see that subsidies, in as much as it's such a good idea, it benefits very few people. The fact of the matter is that a we can't afford these subsidies to begin with, and I'm sure we'll come to the math around that a bit later. But in as much as it looks like a good idea, history just keeps telling us we've really screwed this up over and over again. So why do we keep going back to it? If you're a policymaker, if you're a politician, it looks alluring, but just from the perspective of just plain old economics, it never makes any sense. Yeah, it is true. I will just borrow from what uh, Dr. Ashok Anand says, that a society that lives on subsidies and freebies is always responsible for a corrupt governance. That is one. So what happens, again, I'm going to use a case study of fuel. Most of these programs do not necessarily start off as subsidies programs, yeah? Like what we had in the fuel is that we started with what we call price st stabilization mechanism. What that meant is that for us, the fuel consumers would be deducted five shillings per liter of diesel or air petrol. And this particular five shillings was supposed to build up a fund, what was actually called Petroleum Development Fund. Yeah? Now, this particular fund was supposed to compensate the consumers in the event where fuel prices started rising beyond the set market. Like, for instance, if the government was thinking we do not want the prices to go beyond 120. So in the event it went beyond 120 and it went maybe to 130, the consumer would still pay the 120. And the money from the fund would be used to compensate the increase in prices. Now, unfortunately, 
the prices continued rising faster than the kitty could suffice to pay up the pressure at the pump. So when it went on and on, the kitty, of course, ran out of funds. And we started seeing the government topping up the funds. And that is how it turned into a subsidy. Sometimes we see scenarios where, yes, we have red economics and me and you agree that subsidies are a bad idea in the long run and they're not sustainable as a matter of fact. But some of these programs start very innocently. And then when we have them mismanaged, like for instance, when it comes to the petroleum development fund, what happened is that some of this money was moved even to funds SGR. And I remember in 2021, when the parliament actually ordered the national treasury to compensate the fuel consumer for the transfer of around 18 to 20 billion, that particular action was not taken by the treasury. So you see that something that's off very well, it is well thought out, but at the end of the day, we have mismanagement, we have uh, people coming in, there's corruption. I was trying very much to avoid the yes, in the word cartel. And yeah, it ends up being a subsidy. And then it's not only just ends up even being a subsidy that benefits the entire market. It's a particular group of market players that is created. And before we know it, it becomes really messy. Yeah, indeed, it certainly does. I'd like to remind our listeners from all across the country and of course across the continent, if you've got comments, feedback, questions you'd like to put to the panel, please do so under the tweet that we have on Mongo Capital's account. We're keeping an eye on that and we'll come to your questions and your comments and your feedback in the course of the space. Professor Iraqi, to go back to the question around indirect subsidies, also a proposal in December last year to cut taxes on petroleum as one way of dealing with the rise in fuel prices to give the consumer a little bit of breathing. And Treasury has been immensely opposed to that idea. Given your experience in looking at Kenyan economic history and the way government tends to work, the way it approaches fiscal policy, would you be able to explain to us what informs this deep resistance by government to say, you know what? Let's just cut taxes and let consumers not take on the full brunt of these costs. Let me start by making it clear that as far as I'm concerned, subsidies are nothing but a political solution to an economic problem. And that's why they really work. So if I go back to your question, you are saying that the government should cut taxes so that the price of fuel goes down. The question should be, if the government forfeits that revenue, where does it get the revenue to close the revenue gap? Remember that we traditionally have a budget deficit and getting tax money from petroleum and related products is very lucrative because we are addicted to traveling. We are addicted to our cars. So inevitably, the government is assured of getting money from that. So unless the government has an alternative way of getting money apart from petroleum, I think it would be very reluctant to reduce the tax on that particular product. It would be the best no. approach. But it the counter-argument, Professor Iraqi, could be that you look at the amount of money that is improperly spent for one, the amount of money that is spent on expensive procurement processes, you could make the argument that government could essentially do with a lot less cash. And if they can cut their spending, they can therefore afford on their balance sheet to implement those tax cuts. The government has a lot of alternative ways to bridge the gap. One of them is to reduce the waste. I am yet to drive around the Kenyan roads and find a small car like Vits, that is GK. So there are a lot of ways the government can reduce waste. I'm sure if you look at some of the areas that are deprecated by the county government, the national government, you can use a lot of waste and use that money in other areas. But remember that the decisions that are made by the government takes a long time. 
You may have to go to parliament. You may have to debate. You may have to vote about it. So it doesn't take that short time to make such decisions. And remember that once you are addicted to a certain source of income, they become very easy to run away from it. So I'm not saying that petroleum is the only source of income. There are very many other sources of income, but they are not as easy to implement as getting a tax on petroleum product. And of course, that example, what you're pointing out is an interesting one because that essentially just perfectly describes the situation in Nigeria with the addiction to fuel subsidies and the situation in Egypt as well with the addiction, if you can call it that, to subsidies on bread. I was in Nigeria two weeks ago and was surprised by how cheap fuel is. And I wonder how they would get out of that subsidies without causing problems with the politicians and with the voters. If I look at this debate and others, we are all talking about subsidies, but they have been there before. I remember when I was a small boy, my father talking about something called GMR, guaranteed minimum return. So that if you grow wheat, for example, and the price of wheat is 1,000, but the price goes to, to, to 800, the government pays you the difference so that you can keep on producing wheat. So we must not always see subsidies as cautioning consumers against high prices, but we can also help farmers and others to get higher prices. It can be Indeed. both ways. Indeed. And it's now that you actually have gone straight into the agriculture question, I'd like to focus on that a little bit. And I should declare in the interest of transparency to our audience that from my perspective, I don't think that subsidies generally are a net positive to the Kenyan taxpayer, at least not in the last 20 years of history that we've had. But that being said, regardless, government at this point seems very, very focused on implementing subsidies on fertilizer. What do we need to do? What combination of tax measures do we need to do to ensure that these subsidies work to some extent? Professor Iraqi and then Dr. Modoni can join in. That's an interesting question because I had that question maybe yesterday about subsidizing fertilizers. If any of you as a farmer has tried farming, you will discover that fertilizer probably contributes to 20% of the cost of a farmer. There are very many other costs. For example, the cost of fuel, and even more critical social issues like land fragmentation, which makes it very hard for you to use machines in farming, harvesting, and so on. And the, that problem is regulation. There's sometimes over-regulation on certain crops. For example, if you look at cereals, maize and so on, there's a lot of government in it. If you go to areas like flower farming, we don't have a lot of government. So I think it is wrong to assume that once the price of fertilizers goes down, production will go up. It is more than that. In fact, one of the suggestions that people have been giving is, instead of giving people substrate fertilizers, give them cash rebates, give farmers some money, and then they decide whether they want to put that money into fertilizer, into making silage for their cattle, into facing the crops, it's releasing for land, more land, because as far as economics is concerned, choice is very important. And maybe I can add with a very good example. If you are going for the wedding of a couple, it's not good to take a, a bed to them or a crop or a sufuria to them. The best thing is you give them money, they decide where to put that money. And the same should apply to farmers, whatever they are growing. Thank you. Indeed, the element of choice is absolutely important. Dr. Badoni, please weigh in. Oh, so thank you very much. Now, when it comes to agricultural subsidies, and uh, Professor Iraqi has said something extremely important, because when I was looking at the data and the numbers from Kenya National Bureau of Statistics, it is indeed that when we are, for us to be able to produce a particular product, agricultural product, we have to look at fertilizer, crop chemicals, we have to look at drugs and medicine for the livestock ETC. So we see that as a matter of fact, at the risk of repeating what Professor has mentioned, it is actually around 20 to 25 
50%. If we took Prof Zairaki's example, even if you took a bed to the couple, if they do not have financial compatibility, they lack social compatibility, there are all these other things at play that makes us a marriage successful, then what exactly will that bed do? So for us, what I think we need to look at is simply to look at the entire value chain in production of agricultural produce. Because for me, the thing is when we're looking at a fertilizer, it really doesn't make sense. Now, the other thing is when you look at what right now is Kenya, yeah, last week we saw some money signed off around 3.5 billion shillings by the president for the fertilizers. Now, at the same time, the meteorological department has told us that in the next three rainy seasons, you are going to get less rainfall than we anticipate. Now, Kenya, majority of us will rely on rain-fed agriculture because, again, when it comes to irrigation, it's extremely expensive. So... For me, I would say that if the government is going to use money, then it should use in projects that make sense. For instance, irrigation. And for, so, because when you're looking at food security, for example, we are looking at, we are looking at rainfall, like that is our climate. We are looking at many other things that would affect food production. So instead of giving people fertilizers, for example, why don't you ensure that they have enough water to irrigate their land. And what is really shocking or a bit upsetting is that when you look at the arable land in Kenya, we have around 19% that is arable right now that can be used right now to grow food. But unfortunately, around 65% of that land belongs to the elite and the people, are the settlers. So we have, again, very few land. Now, again, when you look at the statistics from Kenya National Bureau of Statistics of the land that we can irrigate in Kenya, we have around 800,000 hectares that can be irrigated. And this particular mass of land, we have only been able to irrigate 150,000. So the thing is, if I was in the government or if I was to advise on policy, I would literally just get into the irrigation space. If we have around 800,000 land that we can be able to irrigate, and we've only been able to irrigate 150, so we remain with 650,000. Now, let me tell you, the numbers are going to shock you. If you're looking at food security, when you're saying, yes, this is the definition of subsidy, the second question should be, why do we create subsidy programs? What is the purpose of subsidy programs? What exactly are we trying to address? And so the moment you start looking at agricultural subsidy, like now example, uh, fertilizer and so forth, then we have to start thinking. The reason why a government would get into that particular space, it's because they're afraid or they're worried that the people do not have food security. If we can even be able now to irrigate around 150,000 hectares, for example, it, we can be able to produce around 200 million MTs of wheat. And that is enough for Kenyans for, in particular to be able to consume, and because that's what we consume annually. Another 50,000 hectares will be able to give us enough or adequate rice for ourselves and so forth. So the moment when you're looking at just putting 250,000 hectares on irrigation, will one be able to meet our wheat, rice and maize consumption? Second, it is also going to create employment because, for instance, when you're looking at data on employment statistics for Kenyans, you find that one hectare on average employs around five people. So if we have around 250,000 under irrigation, we will be able to create employment for around 1.25 million people. As a government, they should be looking forward. They should be forward looking 
And to be honest, for me, I don't think a fertilizer subsidy makes any sense at all at this point. Thank you. All right. Let me just put a counter argument to you because this specific line of argument came up yesterday, barely 24 hours ago on David and Dee's timeline. And one of the arguments, the counters that he put forward was that, look, the long rain maize harvest this year is down by around 40%. I'll find the numbers for the FuseNet's grain harvest forecast in a bit. And his argument was, how then do we massively scale irrigation in a couple of months, because the time issue, I believe, is part of the problem here. If you think about, even to use a historical example, the one that you used for the Moya Irrigation Scheme, I learned about that as a student in primary school. That was in the mid-90s. I drive past there every now and then, and it's still broadly the same size as it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. The idea on paper sounds amazing, but we have an implementation problem. So how do we crack that? Dr. Modani and then Professor Iraqi, if you want to wait. That's a very interesting question because I believe when someone is asking a question, that means that they have an answer to the counter. Now, if you ask me, how are we going to have a mass, mass irrigation, for example, how are we able to do it in mass in the next few months to ensure that we have enough harvest? Now, the question I would ask Professor David Day is then, how does giving farmer fertilizers ensure that we get enough in the next few months? One, because when you look at it, this I'm not even now looking at the irrigation programs that have been set in the past. I'm saying that with the space of forward looking, we need to come up with solutions that make sense. For example, let's say we have farmer A and we have farmer B. Farmer A is given only fertilizer. And he's told, yes, here it is, ensure that we are able to have enough food for people in Nairobi. Farmer B is given a method where, he, where he's able to get water. Now, this farmer, he can be able to go and get organic manures from his other farmer uh, neighbors, uh, like manual cow dung. He'll be able to find a way. He can use mulching. In the rural setup, we, he can improvise on how to ensure that the soil is a bit richer, but he cannot improvise on getting water. He simply cannot improvise getting water. I would rather if that 3.5 billion that was signed off for fertilizer, suppose that 3.5 billion was just a setup to ensure that we have irrigation, even if it is in a maybe Transoya for we have maize and it does not have to be nationwide. Right now we can't even scale it nationally because the cost of it is actually around 350 billion to ensure that we have 250,000 hectares under irrigation. So the thing is we twenty pole pole a step at a time. What I'm saying is that it is easier to improvise on getting alternatives to fertilizer than it is to get alternatives to water. Professor Iraqi, do you want to weigh in on that question around scaling up irrigation? There's certainly a strong argument to be made for doing it, but how do we go about it? Yeah, that's it's now becoming interesting because if we have to use irrigation to scale up the production of maize and other crops, we need a lot of water. We need to build dams. We need to put up the pipes. And that will not happen tonight because you know, it takes a lot of time to build a dam and all those systems that are used for irrigation. And let's also accept that Kenya has been a generally a water-deficient country. And that is why subsidies are very tempting for politicians because you get an instant solution. So I think we need to start separating the long-term solutions and the short-term solutions. That's why I'm keeping on insisting that subsidies are not the best solution to the rising prices of food or rising prices of petrol. I would insist they are a political solution to an economic problem. Let me explain a bit. 
Let me start with the food. Why do we think that uh, the only way to solve the problem of maize, for example, maize flour, is to give people fertilizer? Why can't we come up with an even simpler solution? Why don't we tell Kenyans to eat alternative food? Who said you must eat ugari? Why don't we eat guashe or doma or even rice? So there are simple solutions beyond just giving people subsidies that can solve our food problems. Look at a problem like rising price of petroleum. The government has no control over that because it can't stop the war in Ukraine between Russia and, and her neighbors. But we can, for example, give more people a chance to import petrol so that there's competition. And if there's competition, the price will go down. Now, some of you might argue that all those people will be sourcing petrol from the same place. But what will happen? It is that people will become innovative so that you start now becoming innovative around the supply chain. You reduce your transport cost. You reduce your storage cost and your petroleum or your petrol products become cheaper. So one of the ways to solve the problem is let's bring competition in food production, in food transport. Let's get competition in oil production, oil distribution, and all that. Because subsidies have never solved any problem. We have tried to use them, but they are not work, and they are not going to work even now. You also what happened. Just before we entered the polls, the government gave some maize subsidies. And two things happened on maize for our subsidies. Two things happened. One, everybody went buying that maize, maize flour because it was cheap. It was a shortage. And as soon as we went to the polls, it had disappeared. We don't have subsidized maize anymore. In fact, the government stopped it. I don't understand why we are spending so much time talking about a system regulating prices that has not worked. Why don't we just let the market do its work? After all, who has ever beaten the market? That's a big question, isn't it? Alternative, yeah. we're just trying to drive people, for example, in the petroleum space, try and drive people towards EVs, for example. If you could implement tax measures that would make electric transportation cost competitive or perhaps even cheaper than petroleum-powered or diesel-powered vehicles, it would probably make a lot more sense in the long run, not to mention all the other benefits that will come in from better air quality, less pressure on our exchange rate because we're not importing as much diesel or petrol as before. I have also something I'd like maybe, because this one affects the subsidies program, especially in the agricultural space. We hear that rather Professor Day yesterday said, uh, or rather earlier this week, as you mentioned, that we cannot do large-scale production of irrigation schemes, ETC, given the short term we have. But then the question is, haven't we done this before, like trying to set up programs or started structures that are supposed to address these issues we're facing? Now, for example, very recent, like when I'm talking about recent, I'm talking about 2016, 2017, the National Agriculture and Rural Inclusive Growth Project was established or launched, which was sponsored by the World Bank. And uh, this particular one, the whole thing, the objective really was to increase agricultural productivity, then increase profitability. The things that were supposed to be addressed, that if they worked, then we will not really need subsidies or any other assistance. And again, we had even another program that the Kenya Climate Smart Agriculture Project, again, which was uh, it started working from 2017 to 2022. These are things that we're having a conversation and we have solutions and these things have been set in place. We have programs and projects that are supposed to even take care of Kenyans. As we are saying, Kenya is uh, generally dry. But now we have Kenya Climate Smart Agricultural Project that was launched and even was supported by different players. 
and one of them being World Bank. So the thing is, we are saying we have this problem and we have, we come up with projects, we come up with a task force, we pay them a lot of money. Five years down the line, where are the answers? Where are the solutions? Yeah. And the unfortunate bit is that some people in today's government, for example, would want to say, oh, no, no, that was in the previous regime. But some of those players were still in the previous regime. So I think it's a high time, even as we question the efficiency of subsidies and other things that we're supposed to do to protect Kenyans, we're supposed to ask for accountability for the projects that were put in place so that would make us not have this kind of conversation today of subsidies. Absolutely. I agree with you, Dr. Modori. I'd like to acknowledge the presence in the room of Esther Koymet. She's the Principal Secretary of the State Department of Broadcasting and Telecommunications. Thank you very much for your time this evening. I'd like to move the conversation just a bit onto the money side of the conversation, because looking at past examples of what we've done in terms of trying to subsidize production, NCPB is one state-owned entity, really, that comes to mind. Now, as of 2021, this is an entity that had accumulated enormous debts from government. This is directly from the CEO's report. Accumulation of huge debts by the government, amounting to 16 billion shillings, is adversely affecting operations of the board. Couple that with weak working capital, that meant that NCPB had to heavily rely on expensive commercial bank borrowings despite the inherent risk of interest. At the close of the year, NCPB had bank obligations of nearly 6 billion shillings and it owed another 1.1 billion to farmers. And Professor Iraqi, we just don't have the fiscal room to continue with these subsidies, do we? That is the problem. We don't even have money to pay for those subsidies. If you look at uh, any time we read the budget of this country, there's always a budget deficit. Which clearly means that we don't have enough yep. money to run our programs, to run some of the programs we want to run. So subsidies would be another grade. And let's also not forget that when people get subsidies, either for petrol or for base flour or whatever it is, it's not free money. Somebody pays for it. And that's my biggest concern with subsidies, that if I'm going to be given subsidies or you are given subsidies, somebody pays for that. And suppose I'm guaranteed of subsidies, I might not work hard as a farmer. I might not work hard as a petroleum dealer because I'm sure of subsidies. So in the long run, we find that those people who are very efficient are penalized at the expense of those who are inefficient. And that's why I'm always been against subsidies as an economist. So what I'm demanding is that we should make our economic life simple. For example, all of you, if you live in Nairobi, you know what happens when it rains. We might not have had rain for the last three months. By the day it rains, miraculously hawkers take their umbrellas to the streets. I don't know where they get them from. Now, if you remember a few days ago, even before President Ruto was sworn in, hawkers were selling his portraits on the streets. I don't know whether they knew that's the one that was coming or not. So those guys are very responsive to the market and they're able to satisfy the market. So why can't we do the same, whether it is about petroleum, whether it is about food, why can't we do that? For example, when you talk about fertilizer, why are we not talking about alternative to fertilizer? When I was growing up, my father never used any fertilizer. We made composite at home. We used it for planting crops. And I can guarantee you that crops were better than what we have today. So why are we not talking about moving to composite mature? Why must we use fertilizer? Why can't we use alternatives? Why can't we rotate the crops? And when you talk about electric cars, why are we not talking about very simple solutions about cars? When I went to Hamburg in Germany, guess what? I was more worried about bicycles than cars. In Germany of all places, why can't we make our roads so flexible 
that we can use our bicycles or walk to work. We don't need to use cars. So let's not just think about complicated solutions. We can use very simple solutions. And we are going to solve a lot of our problems that we're talking about. And clearly, you have seen that subsidies are not working. Why don't we use what, have always, what has always worked? Let the market do its work. Indeed, let the market do its work. We're approaching 8.40 p.m. You're listening to Mungo's Faces in the middle of the week. We're covering the question of subsidies and the Kenyan economy. We're listening to your feedback. We're watching your feed coming through to the Mongo Capital account. So keep that feedback and the questions coming into us. Coming back to you, Dr. Madoni, in the interim, because government seems like they're really focused on this idea of let's put money into fertilizer subsidies and try and pump up output by as much as we can. But on the tax side of things, you look at farmers, for example, someone who might be growing onions, right, for the sake of argument, in Narok. For them to put in 10 tons of those onions that they've put time and money and effort into cross county lines to bring it to Marikiti here in Nairobi, they're going to have to pay cess taxes. Now, on paper, cess taxes ideally should be providing for payment around agricultural infrastructure. But that rarely ever happens. I'm yet to meet a farmer who's actually said, you know what, that road, that irrigation project that was actually paid for because of my cess taxes. What are the tax measures, complementary tax measures that are needed to ensure that? This subsidy blitz that we're doing here, three and a half billion shillings being spent on it, doesn't get wasted because the tax burden on these produce is just so high, it negates whatever benefits the farmer might have. That's a very good question. But for me, I would actually not approach it from a taxation point of view. One of the things I really like about economics, in as much as I'm not one, is that there are a lot of ways you can solve issues. And it also accommodates people from other other areas. One of my favorite sayings by John Adams is that there are two ways to ens enslave an independent nation. One is by the sword and the other one is by debt. Now, the thing is, if we cannot afford subsidy, and we had the other day that even our own president saying that after talking to the treasury, he was informed we cannot stop borrowing. And when we go to borrow, we are given measures. We are told you have to increase your tax base. That means either you increase the number of people who are going to pay taxes, or you increase taxes on existing products, or you maybe even increase something simple like, like VAT, which actually affects everyone else, even the very poorest people. Therefore, I try as much as possible not to look at taxation as a solution to the issues facing the farmers. You give a very good example of someone in the rural parts of Kenya, and they have a lot of onions which they have to transfer to Nairobi. And as Professor Iraqi was talking, I kept thinking, what are the alternative ways of handling things? And this is something that has been crossing my mind over and over again. And why don't we have aggregation centers for agricultural produce? Now, for example, hear me out. We have tea where we have KTDA in all counties, everywhere. Pick it. Farmers, all the farmer need is to go to the nearest tea factory or tea collection center. They drop off their tea. It is weighed. They are given even a receipt and they can use their savings records or the receipts. It's like a warehousing system to access financing. And when the money comes at the end of the year or when the bonus comes, as we call it in Kenya, the amount they owe the bank is deducted and they're given the rest. So this means that this particular system has also been able to make the farmers be able to access financing and they're able to educate their children. They're able to get a better living life or living standard. Now, the thing is, if each and every county was to sit down and assess its strengths, 
economic strength or whatever it is they can produce. Because we sometimes in Kenya, we have glut seasons where you are seeing cows in Nyandarwa being given cabbages to eat. And at the same time, someone in Trukana is dying of hunger. But at the same time, we cannot say that Trukana is devoid of anything. We can't say that they, they don't have anything they can sell to Nyandarwa County, for example. So if we would have those particular conversations, like we have the farmers taking their agricultural produce to the county, or we could have aggregation centers set up, one. And then now the counties would have to invest in infrastructure to preserve this particular food, to transport it, to distribute to other counties. So this will also protect the farmer from the middlemen. It will be able to give them competitive prices because they will be sold to counties that need more, them more instead of giving the particular product to the cow to eat yet they could eat something cheaper and so forth and so forth. So that way we'll, we'll be able to say we are protecting the farmer, we're able to improve the prices, and at the same time we're able to distribute food from one county to another. And the, even a county itself could have negotiating power and they'll be able to protect the people, create employment. And we will have even some places where like now they have tomatoes, they can have value addition processing places where they not only have put, put tomatoes, they can create tomato paste, they can create tomato sauces, and so forth and so forth. So that way you can see that we move from relying on uh, our economy has what we call organic growth, where our income is organic. We are not taxing more and more and more to a cow that no longer has milk. We are actually creating ways for people to make income and make a living. But those are my thoughts around the scene. Thank you. All right. Right. Thank you very much for your input, Dr. Modani. I'd like to acknowledge the fact that we now also have added two speakers to our panel. Ken Opalo is a fascinating political scientist, does some really interesting work over at Georgetown University. Dixon Magesha is joining us all the way from Dubai, I believe. You're on the space after our Zetarian Tibet yesterday. You're joining us once again. I'm sure your input will come in very, very handy with respect to the physical space problems that we have in just a moment. But I'd like to put one question to both of you, Dr. Madoni and Professor Iraqi, before I bring in our new speakers. We're essentially going into the continental free trade area, the AFCFTA. And one of the questions we're getting on the Mongo Spaces account is, how then do we set up a situation where we as Kenyan farmers, as Kenyan tea farmers, Kenyan coffee farmers, Kenyan maize farmers, can compete in a market where other economies might be subsidizing their farmers, either at a production level or through other means. Your thoughts on that, Professor Iraqi? You'll get me first. Not, not that I'm complaining, but I, I think that, that's a very good question because uh, traditionally, if you go to a lot of countries, they subsidize their farmers so that they can make them competitive as compared with the farmers elsewhere. So if we are going to compete with other countries in Africa and elsewhere, I don't see anything wrong with subsidizing farmers but you use that as a medical issue. Like the way you take medicine, when you get cured, you don't keep on taking medicine. You don't become an addict. Or you don't keep on hanging on opioids. So we can use subsidies, but we use it in the best way possible. But as we talk about subsidies today, we have a big problem of managing subsidies. Who gets the subsidies? How much? And when? Because sometimes when you talk of subsidies in a country that doesn't have very well-developed systems, Whoever gets subsidies sometimes is the person who robs most or the person who gets it most. So I think if you have to compete, and I'm sure a lot of countries have done that, they always subsidize their farmers. One, because it is a national security issue, it's a pride issue. Like hungry countries and agri country. 
but we can use subsidies at the beginning, then slowly win ourselves out of it. But let's also forget that the alternative to subsidies giving people money. I don't know why we're not talking about tax, and it, people have been talking about it over and over again. Because sometimes if you reduce the tax rate, you actually collect more taxes in the long run. You make money from volume instead of unit tax. And up to this day, I don't think anybody can tell us which is the best tax rate in this country. So uh, as we think about subsidies, let's think about alternatives. Now, this issue of expanding the tax bit or the tax base is very good because the more tax most of us can pay or the, the more Kenyans who can pay taxes, the more you share the burden. But Kenyans will even voluntarily pay the burden or pay the taxes if they see what is being done with their taxes. That's why transparency from the government part of it is very important. Remember what happened during Kebaki era. Tax revenues went up because people could see what the tax is being done. Finally, let me finish by saying that when we talk about farmers in this country, there's one area we are forgetting. Let's even not go to fertilizer. Let's not even go to the cost of our one more feeds and so on. Who are the farmers in this country? Farming is one of the areas that we have let anybody who cannot do anything else do it. I'm here to walk around the streets of Nairobi or anywhere and see a person giving me a business card that says he's a farmer. So one way to improve productivity, whether it is for maize or for anything, is to make sure that we attract brains to farming. I want to see a student top KCP or KCSE. And when we call him and ask him, what do you want to be in life? He tells us, I want to be a farmer, not a neurosurgeon, not an engineer, not a lawyer. Because farming is so important, but we let people who were left overs from other areas become farmers. No wonder the area is having a lot of problems. Any area, any sector, any industry, for it to thrive, it must attract brains. And it's a high time we start getting very good students, very good brains going to agriculture. It's the mainstay of our economy, but we ignore it. How many of you in this group, in this space here, can, for example, claim to be a farmer? I can guess almost no. It's an interesting challenge there, Professor Iraqi. We're fast approaching 8.50 p.m. Just to put in some numbers, some context onto the argument that Professor Iraqi was making there. The fact of the matter is that if you look at agriculture as a component of GDP, at least in this little corner of East Africa, it's at least 33% of GDP back in 2019. accounts for nearly 60% of employment as well. Ken Opalo from Georgetown, if there is one thing that definitely needs to be fixed, the one thing that any government should be focusing on in terms of fixing it from a policy perspective, from an income perspective, it really should be agriculture, isn't it? Yes. And I think, first of all, thanks for having me. And I'd, I'd like to agree, but also disagree slightly with Professor Iraqi, right? It's probably not a good idea to pack a lot of our high quality human capital in agriculture. I think we should just be brutally honest and accept that ag in general is a very low productivity sector. And it's also true that as Kenya is developing, fewer and fewer people will be in ag. And so perhaps maybe we should channel most of that high quality human capital into research in agriculture rather than being the actual farmer. But I think more broadly, sticking to this point on ag productivity, I think Prof is right that nearly all countries in the world that have any substantial ag sectors subsidize their farmers because it's hard to make money as a farmer. And then second, because everyone has to eat to live, right? Countries would be foolish to abandon the ag sector because that then leads to high food prices and political problems. But for us specifically as Kenya, right? We really need to fix agriculture because agriculture has a direct effect on the cost of labor. And so 
If you look at the newly industrializing countries over the last 40 years, one of the first things they did was make food cheap by helping farmers be more productive and to lower the cost of food, which then had the knock-on effect of A, lowering the cost of labor in urban areas, but also freeing up more labor from the countryside to help the industrialization process. And so the broader policy question here for the Root Administration, which with good reason is focused on ag as one of its core pillars, it should be to think of the agricultural policy as part of a broader industrial policy. So that while we are improving productivity in agriculture and making sure that farmers can make money off of agriculture, also having a longer term vision and realizing that people will not be in ag forever. The labor share in the sector will keep decreasing over time, but the sector is absolutely vital for our bigger dreams in manufacturing and uh, in our sort of process of ongoing development and urbanization. The fiscal side will always be a question that we have to deal with. And even industrialized countries like here in the US each year has a big agriculture bill that gobbles up tons of money. That will always be around. And so the question will be, can we leverage cheaper food and more productivity in agro-processing to make sure that we are making enough money in the more productive sectors of the economy, i.e. manufacturing, to be able to afford the much needed subsidies that we are likely to keep giving farmers because people will not shift to eating Duma tomorrow. They'll want maize and we better be able to produce that maize cheaply even if including by providing government assistance to maize farmers. Professor Iraqi, you get the right to reply before I move on to my next question. I think my, my friend Ken O'Parra is not the first time we are disagreeing. I'm very happy he's in another continent, so we can't box each other. But I think I agree with you. When I talk about making agriculture cool, I'm not saying that people go and start digging with holes. I'm simply take people who can do some genetic engineering, some very serious research in agriculture from making machines that are easy to use on small-scale farming, on making sure that we have pest-resistant crops or drought-resistant crops. I'm not saying we get more people to farm. I'm simply saying let have high-quality brains, people who see agriculture as a profession, not as, as a dusty bin. That's all that I'm saying, because such a critical sector of the economy. I agree with your sentiments, but I, I'm hoping that after this, we can meet one of these days and talk more about it. Thank you. Well, when that, when that meeting happens, I will be glad to buy both of you dinner or breakfast or lunch. When you're both in Nairobi, let me know. I will gladly host that one. Let's get back to the money question, though. Dixon Magetcha, I'm just looking at the ratio of gross expenditure at government level versus ordinary revenue that comes in. And that coverage ratio, the percentage of our expenditure we can cover with our tax revenue, has been in gradual decline. For the fiscal year that ended last June, June 2021, it was just about 50%. When we talk about expanding the tax base, it's something that keeps coming up over and over again. It's become almost cliche at this point, but can it really be done? Hi, Rama. Thanks for having me. Plus Mwango. I'd like to acknowledge uh, Mr. Professor Iraqi, who was my favorite lecturer in Okabeta campus way back in 99 when I university. Glad to see that. Don't, still, don't, uh, don't, don't disclose my age. Glad to see that you're still pushing <laughs> on. I'm also disclosing mine. Yeah. Anyway, so on the question of, of taxation, and I know this is not a popular sentiment. I think we've uh, hammered this fact that Kenyans are overtaxed over and over again. But really, I think if you're looking at the ratios of the tax to GDP, right now, just as you know, sliding around 15%. We used to be at 25% during the era, at around 2013-2014. So ideally, on a purely looking at the GDP number, you would say 
we are performing on that level because we are doing 40% of what we used to. And I, I do appreciate that part of that is obviously because of where the growth has come from over the last five, six years, which has been on public sector spending, which has built infrastructure, which when you measure the output of that uh, is quite significant. Uh, but really, I think uh, it's not very tax accretive you know, once you sort of drill it down. If you think about the SGR, you know, you build the rail line, you displace the sort of the value chain that was on the road, the jobs that were on the road, the say you know the fuel levies and consumption taxes that were coming through that chain but at the same time you have a huge increase in the gdp denominator so that's been pulling down the the sort of a tax gdp number that uh that we've been pushing but you can see this push both from imf and world bank to try and push that number higher because ideally they want us to go back 25 percent uh, which would mean uh from the two trillion level we are right now we're talking about 3.2 3 3.3 uh, to have the same sort of tax output that we had back then. As we go to the next administration, which has less fiscal space to, to conduct the sum of public expenditure that the last one did, ideally, if we move back to private sector participation in the economy, uh, then I would say we would see that number sort of rising. But the challenge right now is that because we have such a huge tax burden, can you really lower taxes at a point when you're looking at default? Because where we are right now, and I'll talk about, say, the fuel subsidies. Like Professor Iraqi said, the best thing would have been just to cut taxes of it because the reason why the subsidy was so haphazardly done, the reason why, as Lucy said, it went to particular guys is because the tax component was kept intact, but uh, the subsidy was supposed to be paid later. So only those people who had the muscle and working capital to actually go and sort of buy the fuel and sell it and wait to be paid by the government were able to remain in business. Everyone else had to sort of say, listen, I only have two, one or two working capital this for fuel for my station. Once I bring one truck, I sell it, that's it, I'm out of the equation until the government pays me, I don't know how many months later. That's how the local nature of that came around. And in a sense, then that subsidy itself became chaotic because then people are not willing to load because they didn't know what they'll get paid until government had to come in and sort of talk behind the scene for people to keep loading. And they obviously took money from other critical areas to pay them, which again, we've seen. Basically uh, the exact same thing that happened yes. with the maize, with maize yes, subsidies sir. in the past in 2017. It's basically a rehash of that. Yes, yes, yes. So the reason why they did that, obviously, is because they don't want to drop the tax revenue. Yeah, because if you drop that tax revenue, then you're going to have issues because you have to service debt. So whereas it's ideal that we are saying, let's lower tax revenue, the taxes will increase. The issue is right now, because we borrowed one trillion last year and one trillion the previous the year before, we need to find a way to bring that number down because that's, the creative nature, if you borrow 1 trillion and you're borrowing it at say 12 or 13%, which is the local cost of debt, then you're adding 130 billion. So even if you add revenues by 130 billion, you're standing still. And at the same time, you still have an increase in the foreign currency portion of that debt, which is by increasing as the currency depreciates. So there's a huge challenge uh, that we see. And I think at this point in time, and like we said yesterday, there's a need for actually sp spending cuts in the budget in the current uh, period, so the next couple of periods, which then lowers the rate of debt increase. And then after that, then you'll be able to do all these tax subsidies and tax cuts that you want to do to provide the physical space that you sort of want to achieve. I think this is a big challenge. Now, because if we say we are not doing any subsidy for the public poor, and we know that Kenya has some of the highest food prices in Africa, because I've traveled around Africa, yet even with these high prices, we're not able to produce. And we were sort of saying, let's do nothing, yet we know there's going to be a huge crisis if we don't cut the cost for the urban poor especially or the nutrition side. I'm happy to hear what thoughts I would have around that. All right. And just to expand that a little bit for you, Ken Opalo, because to some extent it does reflect problems with on the logistics side that the market is not working as efficiently as it should. Because if I'm paying sky-high prices for onions and bananas at Marikiti, but the farmer in Narok is getting peanuts 
clearly there's something wrong with the way that market system is. Yes, absolutely. And this touches on a point that Dr. Mudoni was making earlier about government support on the logistical side, right? And I think we're all in broad agreement, right, that subsidies ha are inefficient. And so to the extent that governments adopt subsidies, it should always be towards a greater goal and after public discussion and acceptance of the costs associated with that critical. And so, yes, social protection, especially on the food side for urban, uh, but also large parts of Kenya, two thirds of Kenya, often requires food aid is absolutely necessary and we can't ignore it in the name of prudential economics. But at the same time, I think the government would be better served to see ag as a means to an end and, and the end being putting money in commercial farmers' pockets, not just the big farmers, but also the middle and small commercial farmers sort of commercialize the farming sector and encourage the farm to market logistical operations to work well, and then increase productivity to reduce the cost of the food that gets to the urban areas. Now, if it does that, then there will be revenue generation and the intervention may result in a world where the improved productivity pays for some of the subsidies that will be needed to make this happen. But then the knock-on effect should always be that once we fix ag, we're thinking now, okay, light manufacturing, lower cost of labor in the urban areas, so that that's where we'll focus on revenue generation to pay for the cheaper food that we're getting to the urban workers. Now, and quickly on fuel and other types of subsidies, right? I would be persuaded to pay for subsidies in agriculture. I am not so persuaded to pay for subsidies in other sectors like fuel that are not tied to specific developmentalist goals, right? I think people with fuel guzzlers should pay for the market rate for fuel. To the extent that we're subsidizing fuel, it should be with a clear goal for specific industry policy purposes and not just to make urban car owners happy. Indeed. And I mean, but the fact of the matter is that for a lot of us, we can afford to essentially be paying 200 shillings, maybe 250 a liter for our cars. It won't be pleasant, but we can certainly absorb that hit in a way that other parts of the economy certainly cannot. I just want to make a simple question here. We keep talking about spending on agricultural subsidies. Fair enough. But the existing institutions that we have at the moment are clearly unfit for purpose. You look at NCPB, for example, saddled with debt, unable to properly administer subsidies on fertilizer or for maize. You think about the sugar sector. It's been running on taxpayer support for the last 20 something years. Every single year, government officials go down to commerce and say, look, we need another year or two to protect our sugar sector, therefore locking in the market into more expensive sugar. If we to tear down that entire edifice of all these state-owned SOE that we have and rebuild it again from scratch, what structures do we need in place to make sure that these subsidy programs actually work? Dr. Modoni, do you want to take on that first? Uh, okay, thank you. Now, what I would look at, I would actually start looking at it this way. Did they used to work at some time in the past? What happened that they stopped working? It comes from the whole thing. We shared 99% of the genes with the monkeys, and therefore it is the 1% that makes human beings very different from the monkeys. Now, the thing is, what was working before? So first of all, we had what we call strategic food reserves. And I think this is something that can be set up instead of when you have structures and organizations working together with others. For instance, if we could get back Million Corporation of Kenya which was working with NCPB. KTDA is my favorite example. When you look at how KTDA works, 
yeah, and we're able to understand why it is so efficient. And we are able to see what can we borrow from KTDA so that we are able to manage how agricultural produce is handled. Yeah. And how come is it that they've done so well for so many years? And yes, they've had their share of challenges, but what is it that they've done right? So when we are looking at NCPB and we are looking at, uh, we get back a mining corporation of Kenya and with those two players, we can be able to get, even now connect, uh, rather talk to Zelensky or Putin, that is uh, Ukraine and Russia, and probably get cheap white maize and we're able to feed the people. Now, if I was in a position to give advice, sorry, advice to anyone, is I would look at what Kibaki did. President, the late President Kibaki, may God rest his soul, into, you know, there, there is this whole thing we are told that we cannot stay without borrowing. And we see that during the 2004-2005 financial year, Kenya did not borrow from outside. So the question is, what did he do right? The government of Kenya did not borrow any extra money. So that shows us that it is possible to finance the government affairs without borrowing. And the thing is, when you're talking about 204-205, this guy came into power December 202. So he started working in 203. So the question is, again, what did he do right? Because... When we are looking at what he got in 2002, what he inherited, and at the end of the day, what he left us with, he had so much to do. So what has happened in the last 10 years? And what can we borrow from Kibaki, the monkey, 99%, and us, we are another monkey. And then we just put in an extra 1% to become human. It all boils down to governance, right? And the spine to do the right thing and make decisions that will be unpopular if you're a politician, because essentially what you're saying is if I'm cutting spending, that's limited opportunities for my members of parliament or my supporters to essentially raid tax coffers. And ultimately the argument is, do we have politicians who have the spine to do that, to make that sort of hard call? No, but when we are looking at the book, it's our time to eat by Mikel Arong. It was written during Kibaki's era, meaning that even him, he was surrounded by swines. So the thing is, probably now the people who he put in charge of key institutions were now the people that were driving conversations. For instance, when we look at what happens, happened in 2013, for example, we used to have what we used to call a National Social Economic Council. National Social Economic Council was disbanded almost less than two years after Kibaki left governance. So you see that some of these, uh, the National Economic, Social Economic Council, we, even when he set out, when he launched uh, the MTPs, that is the medium term plans and so forth, you can see that this council had a lot of say in the direction of the country. So if I ask, for example, what happened to Vision 2030 blueprint? No one can see so much. We actually abandoned it and we got on a, another bandwagon of uh, the big four. And again, we all know what happened to the big four and DTC. The other thing that Kibaki did right, in as much as academics who we are sometimes not appreciated, we saw that Kipra, they give advisory to the Central Bank of Kenya, but Kipra was very, very active. They were able to inform fiscal policies and so forth. And that's why you can see someone like Professor Iraqi would be very like, his name reaches our house before we even meet him. Because, and not just him, when you look at even other economists who are able to come 
together and come up with economic policies that were helping the country. Then we have these people who are spearheading the country. We were in good hands. If I was the president today, the first thing is I'd actually look at who are spearheading this particular government because Kenyans are still Kenyans. Kenyans are still Kenyans. Can Apollo please join in question? And then I'll yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I, I couldn't agree more with Dr. Mudhoni and she's preempting my column this Saturday in the Standard. Just to, on this point, right? Like the question that you asked about how can we make that switch from a world where we see our NCPBs as feeding troughs versus as engines of growth? I think at a fundamental level, it's an ideational question and leadership because there's money to be made with a more productive agricultural sector. Everyone benefits, including the elites in power. And with the right leadership and a president and people around him who have the vision to want to elevate the game that we are playing in all the sectors of our economy, we can get there. And then we can leverage the brains that we have, right? Prof Iraqi and, and many people like him are often waiting in the wings, right, to help the government in any way they can. And this is the story of development all over the world in countries that have been able to develop faster than we have. They have managed to make ideas work well with their politics in shaping how their institutions run. And new administrations always present new opportunities for taking a different path. And hopefully this cycle will take a different path. Well, fingers crossed. Let's see how this plays out. Dixon, Dr. Modoni, this next question is for you. I've been looking at the domestic borrowing stats for our last fiscal year, 21-22, roughly 877 or so billion shillings being borrowed in the domestic market. But we're looking at the sort of cash flow problems that the government is facing at the moment and all these pressing demands for spending on subsidies and so on and so forth just to keep the machinery of government running. In that sort of environment, how likely is it that domestic bondholders might be asked to take a haircut, especially as we approach 2023, 2024, because there's this big wave of bond redemptions that we need to sort out in that fiscal year. So if you're in this space and you are a fund manager for pension fund, insurance company, or you're on the treasury desk in a bank, what are the odds of you being asked to take a haircut? I think that is a very highly unlikely scenario. I think if you look at governments that have attempted to restructure local debt, it's usually because interest rates have become unsustainable to the tune of say 40, 50%. And as such, the rate of increase of the debt is doubling every one or two years. And it's impossible for that to get paid. They'll keep it on printing uh, excessively to, to, to cater for that. I don't think we have an issue on the local currency debt per se. I th think most of our issues right now, I'd say the risk will be on the foreign currency side. And simply because of the current account deficit and the fact that for that particular portion of the debt, we do need to raise FX to pay it. On the local currency side, it's a matter of government making hard decisions on austerity. I think usually what you'll do is that uh, you'll try and raise debt. And if you don't want to pay a particular level, then you don't pay it. And then you'd have unfunded budget items and you go back to your budget and see what else can I cut. And if you went back and cut, uh, even if it's a temporary development budget, by say, in order of the budget, which would be like 280 billion, all of a sudden, instead of needing to borrow 580 billion, now you need to borrow 300 billion for this year. Now, 300 billion, it's a small sum for our markets and anyone who was looking for duration then would run to buy that because they understand that after that yields will come lower. So ultimately, I think the depth of our market uh, is such that because it's locally owned, 96% of all Kenyan of all bonds are owned by Kenyan. And a part of the rest are actually owned by uh, some of our South African neighbors. So the portion of our debt that's owned by offshore is quite small. And we don't really need offshore to service our domestic uh, debt. 
So it's just a matter of people are scared of duration. Banks are flush with cash, but you don't want to buy paper if you think yields are going to go higher tomorrow, then you have to mark to market uh, those losses. So what you'll be doing by cutting the budget is giving the confidence that once I issue this, I will not be issued anymore. And as such, then market will scramble to buy that and push yields back lower. Ultimately, that will come with consequences, obviously, because you're going to add austerity. You'd have to cut spending. But I think that would fix it. Thinking about, say, the Ghana scenario, and I think the Ghana scenario is what has brought all these issues. Just clarify for the sake of our viewers, give us a, a snapshot of what's happening in Ghana, because that's a big part of the story. Okay, so Ghana was under distressed uh, debt condition as Kenya about a year ago. Their currency was about uh, six with the dollar, but the difference is that their offshore holding of their debt was about a quarter of the total debt. And they were issuing their debt at around 19%, which means that as the offshore coupons came up, there's quite a need for guys to roll over. Also, their debt to GDP level was about 80%, slightly higher than ours. And they also had a bigger portion of foreign currency debt. So the maturities are coming up for Eurobond rollovers, uh, coupon interest, plus the uh, demand that came from domestic coupon remittances by people who own the local debt were putting a lot of pressure on the currency side and the market started depreciating. So the currency depreciated from around six and now it's gone all the way to 10, uh, about 10.4 uh, in some offshore markets today. So we're looking at close to 60, 70% depreciation. That then means that not only is the size of the debt increasing exponentially because of the foreign currency bit, but also because of the fears surrounding that, the interest rate that they're paying has moved from a 19 to now market is trading out of their bond at around 33-34%. So if you're going to roll over debt at 34%, it means that every two years that debt will double in size. And as, at that point in time, there's fears that you'll not be able to do that unless you keep printing. And that's when you'd hear a proposal like this. I'm not sure they'll go down this route. And again, because of two things. Number one, when you restructure that debt, you have to see who are the holders of that debt. Number one, it'll be your pensioners, uh, your country pensioners. You'll be having your banks. And if you write down the bank's uh, portion that they own, then they have to write that against capital. So if you decapitalize all your banks, first of all, they can't lend. Then you do a hit on, on your pension industry, basically the valuing and making a huge tax on a small portion of the society, whereas all the rest are let to uh, go scot-free because that will be a tax. I think it becomes untenable because then immediately you just have to raise more debt and more bonds to capitalize the same banks to be able to continue lending. I think this was a mama that came out and I'm not sure it's something that even the IMF would push forward. And case example is Zambia, which is in default. Despite the huge need for restructure, the local portion of that debt has not been touched. And Zambia also has about 33% offshore holding of their debt, and the debt is at 25%. But despite those high yields, they've not seen it uh, fit to touch the local currency debt because it's held by mums and pops, held by banks, it's held by pensioners. And it's very destructive to the economy to do that. If you did that, then you don't have a financial system. You have no financial system, then you have a less likely chance of coming out of the crisis in the first place. Thanks. Fair enough. Just to follow up on that particular question, anyone on the panel can take on this question. Looking at rates or short-term paper, 91-day T-bills, for example, the auction, the, the prices I'm seeing at auction for coupon rates now is around 8 almost 9%. But if you go all the way back to 2005, in the early parts of that year, T-bill rates fell below 5%. I do recall seeing auctions taking place with T-bill rates at around 2.6%, 2.9%. As part of this effort to try and reduce the amount of money that's going out just on debt service, might we see the central bank coming in at auctions and saying, look, we're not going to take money at 12% or 9% or 8%. How realistic a possibility is that? If I could speak from the market perspective, I think central bank acts as an agent for treasury. And really, I think treasury is one who would have to pay. And they pay that based on the need. And the need would be what expenditure is supposed to be covered. Yeah. So, for example, if you budgeted these sums and you have very urgent needs, how long can you hold out before you have to pay? 
Yeah. And it's not that market doesn't want to give you the money. It's just that the market is concerned that after they give you the money, yields could go higher and they'll make losses. So the market is always trying to get a sweet spot off the top of the market or where the market is stable. I would say what, what would happen is that then you'd either choose to reject the auction. And the more you reject the auctions, obviously, the less the time you have to meet that fiscal borrowing. For example, if you reject auctions for six months, then you only have six months to borrow the whole amount that you had to borrow. If you had to borrow 600 billion, you were supposed to borrow 50 billion a month. Now you have to borrow 100 billion a month. That then even will add the fears even further. So what you'd have to do then is to go back and cut the budget. Just reduce that amount that you need to borrow, which then comes down the markets. And then you can sort of pan and tie that over. And if after you finish borrowing that, there's still space and room for markets to take more debt, then you can go back and issue another supplementary budget to cover whatever that was not covered. But ideally, you could say you don't want to. It's not that people don't want to invest because if they don't invest, then they're earning 4%. So there's a cost not investing. So you'll be asking, what is this fear they have? That they're willing to earn 4% instead of 12 or 9. It's just fear of that duration. No one wants to, to buy paper that they think will be underwater in the next auction, which will be driven by your own need to borrow. So how do you calm that fear? By making sure that market is comfortable, that the amount you want to raise can be raised in the markets without you and really impacting the income. Indeed, it always comes back down to that question of fiscal discipline, doesn't it? Kenopalo, please come in. Yes, ab absolutely. And in addition to the sort of domestic dynamics that we've just heard about, right, the global economy is facing serious headwinds, right? And as the U.S. fights inflation, the Federal Reserve Bank is throwing lots of economies under the bus in the process with increased value of the dollar, costs of imports going up for everyone, and that will create even more macro challenges for economies like ours, which is why it's going to be absolutely crucial to have the right people at Treasury. And as we just had, right, to build confidence in the market that the folks at Treasury know what they're doing and that they can be trusted to keep the macro economy stable. Because otherwise, lots and lots of smaller economies like ours will struggle in the coming one, two years, given the global trends that we're seeing right now. Indeed. And just in the course of this space, the Fed has actually just raised its policy rate, 75 basis points. It's moved it forward to that three, three and a quarter percent range, which is pretty unprecedented, especially over the last 20 years. There's an interesting question that has come up on the spaces. This one's from Eugene Gourmet, and I'm going to enhance it a little bit. He's pointing out that every year taxes go up and that in turn discourages investment. I guess to add a little bit to that question, ultimately the question here has to be, what points do we say, at least even if we're not cutting taxes, let's keep it stable for the next five years and work with what we have at the moment. Might that actually have a positive stimulative effect, Professor Iraqi? That's what I've been saying all the time, that if you cut the tax rates, you might actually collect more taxes and by extension is to meet the economy. But because of the appetite uh, for the money that the government usually have, they find it very hard to cut the taxes. But it would be the most prudent thing to do. If you look at some of the big policies that were made by Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan or currently the Prime Minister of UK, they are talking about cutting the tax rates and that is going to stimulate the economy, bring more investors and so on. So I don't know why the government is so reluctant to make such a simple decision, which has been tested and has been found to work. Maybe it's because they don't have an alternative source of revenues. We have talked about reducing the waste and probably focusing on other areas that have not been taxed in the past. I've talked without annoying anybody about the digital economy, a very big source of taxes. and. I say again, if we share the burden of taxes, the rates will go down and everybody will be happy. And maybe at the same time, I would make to make one or two 
comments about my previous speakers. The TBO rate from 9% was one time 5%, now 9%. The yep. question of supply and demand. The government has a very high appetite for money. So what is the best way to attract people to come and buy the TBOs? Raise the interest rates. It's not rocket science. Debt, this issue that was read by Dixon about the Ghanaian case, about debt. I think debt is not a big issue in this country. We can still borrow more money as long as we make the economy grow. The debt ratio is simply debt over GDP. If we make the economy grow faster, then we can absorb more debt. No country in the world has ever developed or grown without debts. Even, even ourselves, we have debts. The question is whether we are putting debt into the right use to increase or to improve the productive capacity of the economy. So that's a bit realistic. And I'm waiting to see how the new government is going to deal with the debt because they were against the previous government borrowing. But the squeeze they are in, they might also have to borrow a bit. Finally, let me comment about the two previous speakers. And you are the one who asked that question about what should we do with the current institutions that are having problems? Like, did you say National Syrian Produce Board? I think you said that. With yes, all of these agricultural SOEs, we to, got the sugar we, companies, we all of them. We need to restructure them. I have a very good example. How comes nobody is talking about a very obscure institution called AFC? It has obviously drove the country, but it has been very quiet. When I look at the history of this country, I discover that previously AFC was called Agricultural and Land Bank, or Land Bank and Agricultural Bank during the colonial era. And you can see it was very focused on agriculture. Do we have any bank today or any financial institution that is focused on agriculture, despite it being very important? So those reforms are very important. I have always insisted that agriculture needs to be more innovative. For example, I was surprised to find the other day that the flower farms are exporting flowers to Europe using the ship or by ocean or by sea. Nobody thought that we could do that. We thought we, can all, we must always export flowers by air, but they're now doing that by sea, which makes it very cheap. So I think in agriculture, we need an M-Pesa moment, new innovations, so that we can do things very different from the way we have always done. And before I finish, Dr. Modoni, I'm very happy you talked about NESC because I worked for NESC. I know it can work. I participated in a dating vision 2030. I'm not boasting, I'm just informing you. Dr. Wahamika Kuru, God bless his, uh, his soul. The simple institution can make a difference to this country, but we must be willing to make bold decisions. Some people might be hurt. Some people might not be happy about it. But a country progresses when people make decisions that they are convinced of, that they are convinced they can work. And it's not good to make policies, to make statements, have a discussion like the one we're having today, if nobody's going to implement that. Somebody must implement that, no matter how big it is. Professor Rakif may draw on your experience working for NESC, especially for some of our younger listeners in this space. That sense of focus that it brought to what we'd see with tax policy, with spending plans that would then go into parliament. Walk us through what transformations NESC wrought in terms of implementing tax policy and spending policy in this country, especially in that pivotal five or seven year window between 2002 and 2007? I think what I found in NESC was very simple. Before major decisions were made, you remember NESC was shared by the president himself. And I remember one time going for a meeting where the meeting was chaired by the former prime minister, Raira Odinga. So every major decision that was made by the government was being tested. People came and discussed it. Remember most of the PSs and most of the government cabinet ministers were members of NESC. So any big decision that was made by the government was thoroughly discussed and people looked at the pros and cons so that the best decisions were made. Decisions were not made based on people's whims, based on how you woke up in the morning. 
And maybe that's what we need to rediscover. Remember that making decisions for a country is very difficult. There are so many factors to consider, both internal and external. There are so many interests to consider. And everybody will become the president, who becomes a cabinet sector, realizes that. There's, there are no formulas or algorithms for making decisions in the public sector. That's why you need a lot of discussion. You need a lot of people who can see the bigger picture instead of seeing the smaller picture. So during the back era, that was very common. People were discussing, people were being asked hard questions. And they came up with very good solutions. I will need to rediscover that. Remember that if you read politicians make decisions for you, they usually make decisions based on your interest. But as Muloni said, if you make academicians and other more neutral people make decisions for the country, most likely they will make better decisions. And I think that's what happened during the Quebec era. And we hope uh, that with a new regime, the same is going to happen. I think even uh, Dr. Ruto was probably part of NESC around that time. He can discover that era. No, it works out. Ken Obama. Rama, just to add on to what Prof has said, right? Because the obverse of having Kenyan academics and people who know Kenya well make the decisions is that politicians will run around making messes. And then when the fire breaks out, they call in the firefighters, often foreign experts, right? Who then come with lots of solutions that may not be politically feasible. And so you end up with lots of half measures imposed by- like, like you're talking about big four. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You have half measures imposed by outsiders that are not properly implemented because they're not sensitive to our politics and a general understanding of how things work in Kenya. We don't have a way out. If we fail to set up our own processes of making policy, we'll make policy as a firefighting measure as opposed to a process of deliberate planning, implementation, learning as we move forward. Indeed. Dr. Modoni, I want to come back. Can I say something before Modoni comes in, please? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. I'm not defending the former president, Uhuru Kenyatta, but if you are conversant with Vision 2030, you discover that the big four was just a derivative of Vision 2030, but that has not been made plain to most Kenyans. Dr. Madani, if I may just get back to you on something you mentioned a little earlier, a warehouse receipting system. I know there was a bill that took years to work its way through the parliamentary system, but it finally did become an act for parliament in 2019. And it could, on paper, fix a lot of the issues that you're talking about, right? Providing verifiable collateral that farmers can then use to essentially get a bit of credit flowing into that system. And agriculture is still even now a mostly ignored part of the economy. What do we need to do in the medium term to make sure that the warehouse receipt system works and delivers returns to farmers? Well, thank you for that question. One, as I've said over and over again, we do not need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, what I have actually written something about that because what we were planning to do, or rather what I was planning to do with, I was working with Professor Joseph Kimura. I am still working with him and a group of my students. And uh, what we thought is that if we could have that system, we test it in one county. So we were thinking of Moranga County because, again, of its proximity to different strategic counties, its proximity to Nairobi and so forth. So if it works, then we roll out to other counties. Now, but before I get to the nitty gritties of what we will need, it I would just like to reiterate what my colleagues have said, where we need to have neutral people. For example, we, we had the Kenya revenue sharing formula in 2014-2015. And uh, I remember in 2015, it was presented to the National Assembly where it was rejected. 
And at that time I was pursuing my PhD. And when I looked at it as a mathematician now, not as an economist, I looked at it and I was able to reconstruct the indices. And I went to see Professor Kimura, who I had never met before in my life. And I explained to him, these are the issues with the formula. And I have done the maths behind it. And if we could use this kind of model and we reallocate to the counties, then this particular passe uh, will be handled. And with that, him and now Jojo, or that time the CEO of CRE Commission for Revenue Allocation, they were able to listen to me and finally we worked together and the formula passed. So sometimes as Kenyans, now this is me reaching out to everyone listening into this particular program, is that we are all responsible for what happens to our country. If you see something is not working and you feel like you have a solution for the same, Please reach out and talk about it. Even if it's just an email, you never know where that email is going to land. And if it is any research firm, if it is any ministry, just reach out, say, this is not working. This is what I've thought can be done. And who knows who will listen to you. And it is now on that same breath now when I was talking to Professor Kimura later when we were discussing about the, the problem with food security. I, we were curious, how come that we are seeing some counties have so much wastage during particular times, and then later the same, same produce go for so expensively and because of different seasons. And now that's where now we start thinking, why don't we look, study, very, very keenly study the KTDA system and then try to replicate it for other agricultural produce. But for that to happen, we will need a few things that KTDN does not necessarily need. One of them, we will need cold rooms, for example, for preservation of the food, like the tomatoes, the perishables. So we will need cold rooms. Of course, we'll need a human resource. We will need electricity. So we were thinking we use a renewable energy. We can use extensive solar panels. And those are the conversions we had even started. We were talking with University of Nairobi, the upper cabetes, if they can be able to help us with the cold room because they have the technology, they are in agriculture and agricultural engineering. And then we talked to Strathmore Energy Renewal Department or school where they can now look at how they can come up and help with the solar panel installations and so forth. We will need transportation because the food, whatever is being produced in Muranga County has to be distributed to other counties. So we will need proper transport trucks which are fitted with the refrigeration system so they can be able to preserve ETC. So we were looking at different counties will have different things to bring on the table. If we're looking at Kisumu County, for example, we will have fish, we will have groundnuts and so forth. So the question is, what can we do with groundnuts? We can make peanut butter. There's so much we can do. The most important thing is to start the conversation. And I believe, again, very many people here in this particular forum we come from different counties and saying that we are going to start with Moranga, even wherever you are today, you can go back to your county and think, how can I help my county so that it becomes a bit competitive? Yeah, but um, uh, I can uh, share uh, more about it later. In, indeed, but uh, sitting back from a lot of the people who are in the mid-30s who are listening to this conversation or perhaps even older would say, but these are ideas, they're not new. Right. We've spoken about value addition as part of agriculture as far back as the 80s. We talk about the things that farmers need, like soil testing services, for example. We need extension services to be able to pull that off. We talk about crop research. I mean, Kabete, the Kabete campus for University of Nairobi, the, the agriculture department does some really interesting work. Full disclosure, my parents went through there. So I know the quality of work that they do. 
And mm-hmm. the thing that always irks me about this, what usually happens in our case, is that you've got fantastic ideas in faculty, fantastic ideas in research, but they rarely ever translate into market solutions. Where's the disconnect? The disconnect comes in because of lack of exposure. Let me give you some examples. You will see that some institutions or universities or organizations, they make a deliberate effort to ensure that they communicate about what they are doing. They are able to write and say, this is what we are doing. Case in point, there's a project I was doing with my students. And for this particular project, we needed to meet people from Moranga County in leadership. For me as Lucy, I'm just a teacher at Strathmore. It will be very, very hard to access the leadership of Moranga County, for example. So what the university did is that we have a partnership with World Bank. So we wrote to them an email, requested, could you facilitate? Because World Bank works with different counties and they know the decision makers, they know the key people. So we requested them, you have to sell an idea. So this is what we are doing. And this idea that you're selling has to solve a problem. And this is what I keep on telling my students every time. And not just even my students, even the professional mentees that I have or protégés, is that whatever you're doing, it has to be a solution to an existing problem. Many people in today's Kenya, we think of how can I make money? How can I benefit? You want to get into government so that you make as much money as possible in the shortest time possible. So when you start thinking about how you can benefit, then you do not move far. You can only move far when you start thinking of how can I be a solution to my country's problem or to my colleagues' problems or to my friends' problems. The moment you start looking at the world that way, then you will find that you become very, very useful to very many people. And when you are offering solutions, people will listen. And then now they will give you exposure. They will take you wherever. And again, now, if we have university students in this particular forum, I encourage them very, very highly that if they have guest lectures, for example, people are coming outside from university to talk to them about anything, please attend those sessions. After that, stay in for networking because these are the same people you're going to meet tomorrow that are going to open different doors for you. Am I allowed to say something? Yeah. Go for it. I like like the way Modoni has put it because one of the things that has worried me as an academic is the way people people don't trust our ideas, but you're more willing to trust ideas from elsewhere. When some writes a thesis in this country, you look at the references, even if it's about witchcraft, all the references must be from abroad, must be from elsewhere. Yet we are the people who understand the problems in this country better than anybody else because we grew up here. We see these problems every day. But I think we also to bring from to some extent because occasionally we don't listen. Most of us in academia don't listen. We think that we have all the solutions. But it's actually the people on the crowd who have very good solutions. And I'll give you a good example. When, about 2013, I went to Sudan, Khartoum, and I got a tax from the airport, and I then a tax back to the airport. And I had a conversation with the tax driver. And a few years later, Sudan exploded. And I could recall the conversation we had with that taxi driver. He had more insight about the political system in that country than any professor I talked to. So one way for us to be reasoned by other people is to also reason to them, because a lot of us don't reason to them. Now, very quickly, the question asked by the moderator about why do we keep on recycling solutions, or why do we forget what has happened in the past? When I was in primary school many years ago, my father was a member of Kenya Farmers Association, KFA. And if he wanted fertilizer, if he wanted animal feeds, if he wanted my school fees, he just needed to go to KFA 
and show and demonstrate that he had delivered some pyrethra, he had delivered some milk, he had delivered some sheep wool. And that was usually done to the cooperative society. So all these problems we are talking about today, like warehouse receipts, have been tested. I don't know why in this country we have solutions, we throw them away, then we start crying back. In fact, I can approximate that 95% of all the problems in this country have a solution that has been either tested here or tested elsewhere and has worked. The problem we should be asking is, why don't we have the will to implement the solutions that we think about? And whether it is the old government or the new government, that is the area we should focus on. Can we implement new ideas? Instead of talking about them, let's implement them. And I think at the end of this presentation, at the end of this discussion in this space, what I'm looking for is, can we pick those ideas from intellectuals, from ordinary people on the streets, package them in such a way that they can be implemented? And as Mogoni said, when people see a solution, they are going to follow you. They are going to implement it. But it must be communicated in a language they can understand. For example, why can't we have spaces next time in Swahili or in one of the local languages? Is it impossible? It can certainly happen. We're fast approaching 9.50, so we've got another 10 minutes or so on the space. And I want to move the conversation towards our closing thoughts, as it were. Kenneth, I'm going to give you two minutes to give your input, and then I'll move on to the closing remarks. Yeah, I think the question of linking academic work to practical solutions is key. And in addition to what Prof and Dr. Mudani have said, right, one of the challenges we face as academics is that often we're very wedded to first best solutions, right? And at times we are not willing to see the problem for what it is and let the context dictate the types of solutions we can recommend for implementation. And often that requires understanding politicians and the incentives and their fallibilities and then crafting solutions that work for them, right? So that if you're crafting a policy for the ag sector in Kenya, we should realize that we're not going to have a squeaky clean system, but we can have a working system because historically we've had NCPB and other such SOEs do a good job of big extension services, helping with the financing and helping farmers do well. And so our challenge should be, as we're thinking about policy research and also interfacing with government officials, to be open to meeting them where they are, as opposed to always insisting on first best solutions. And then finally, I think in my own experience, in some of the sort of advisory roles that I found to have been successful was in actually maintaining regular contact with policymakers so that in addition to just being the expert that shows up once in a while, right, you maintain regular contact with government officials so that they learn from you and you learn from them. But to make this an ongoing process, iterative process of back and forth, as opposed to experts just showing up for the advice and then leaving and not really getting to know what happens after they leave. Indeed, because they have absolutely no skin in the game. And that, of course, creates its own incentive problem. Just to wrap up our discussion, there are a lot of issues that we've covered, right? We've discussed the thinking around subsidies. Should they be there? Should they not be there? The question around how do we pay for them? Who pays for them? What are the net effects that we're aiming for? And what is the best possible alternative that we have to, you know, first best solutions to use Nopalo's words here. Let's put ourselves in the position of these policymakers, Treasury and the Agriculture Ministry over the next five years. A lot of unrealistic promises have been made on the campaign trail, but now comes the harder bit of actually governing. And there are a lot of unpleasant trade-offs that need to be made here. What 
should these individuals do in crafting that message, in telling taxpayers, look, this is economic reality we face. These are the trade-offs that we have to deal with. And this is why we have chosen this course of action. You all have 60 seconds. Ken Opalo, I'm starting with you. Yeah, I think first would be to just level with voters, tell them the truth about the state of play, right? And then second, do play smart politics. So that if we say that we're going to stop subsidies, no one domain, say fuel, right? We also aggressively pursue reducing food prices so that overall, right, the inflationary pressure is not as stark as it would be if everything was cut at one. And then make sure that our short-term solutions to the current crisis are not ones that will lock in and make future reforms harder. And that's something that will require a lot more thinking than most administrations appreciate, making sure that the, the stopgap solutions that we implement to go through this crisis will not be ones that will lock in and become inefficient sort of baggage further down the road. And I don't envy the folks who will be running treasury or agriculture, but I hope that they'll be open to external ideas and criticism and learning as they move along. Indeed, and hopefully that translates into them not running around with big fat Toyota Prados and running traffic and taxpayers off the road. Dixon Magetcha, your 60 seconds piece of advice. How do you communicate these ideas? I think it's one, it's just let markets work. What do I mean by that? Like it's been alluded throughout this space, subsidies do affect the smooth functioning of markets. And I would say you could do subsidies, yes and good. However, how you do them is, is quite important. So for me, I think the best subsidy would be one that's given straight to the final consumer. So if you're giving um, if you're giving a food subsidy, you should give food vouchers to the poorest society as opposed to giving retailers who quickly uh, distribute that. Fuel the same, you give the poor because even if there's a secondary effect of inflation coming from uh, from the fuel going higher, the most impacted will be the poorest. So you give them directly and let everyone else sort of function within the market. Thinking about the bigger picture, agriculture itself, uh, the fertilizer, again, you give e-vouchers to farmers based on the land they own and then go back and measure the productivity. Use that data to make a better subsidy program as opposed to just giving, again, a blanket subsidy to retailers, which distort markets and makes it harder for other people to compete when they're trying to sell their own fertilizer and ultimately has a worse cost. If you think about the structure that has been spoken about in the last five, 10 minutes or so, I would say you need to boost the derivative market. The issue we have of price volatility and the fact that you lack storage, you lack visibility. One moment the price is up by a thousand percent, next time you're throwing away produce. All these points to lack of a market. If you had a functional market in the exchange where people can sell and buy futures, that would work. However, the risks surrounding that have not been able to be measured and dispersed by the private sector. So what the government should do is then subsidize particular private sector guys to sort of run a program. And if they make losses, make good for those losses to just kickstart that. And you realize that a lot of the technologies in the world today would never exist if they were left to the market. For example, the EV vehicles right now, they've been around for 100 years. It's only when the tax credits were given that companies like Tesla were able to actually come out and make cars. Otherwise, it's never going to happen. So we have to realize that the government needs to step in some areas to sort of reduce the private sector risk. And again, because we have a trust deficit with the public institutions, the reason why NCPB will never work is because you take your mice there. There's a chance that through graft, something would happen to it. So we have to involve the private sector because that's where the, the trust is and that's where the market economics actually do work. Because sometimes you do this in the public sector and the inefficiency of that model becomes a cost against to the exchequer and can never be sustainable. So you want the free markets to work that profitably 
And because we already have high food prices, it's just a matter of meeting producers with the market efficiently for that to work. And I would say subsidies then would target making that efficiency happen. All right, then let the markets work. Dr. Modoni, your 60-second messaging pitch for dear friends in Treasury and the Ministry of Agriculture. Thank you. First is Kenyan problems can only be solved by Kenyans who know them and understand them intimately. And in the event that we need assistance, like maybe technical assistance because of infrastructural inability, then that's when we should reach out to people outside our country. That is one. Second is that we are, if, especially when you're dealing with things that are like fuel subsidy, I believe I've talked about other subsidies, but I'm a bit keen about the fuel is that the long-term solution for us to deal with fuel subsidy is actually looking at workable solutions, like long-term solutions. And what is this? This is uh, when it comes now to renewable energy. And the Treasury should ask itself, or they should ask themselves, what is the role of the private sectors? Like, who are these people that they've signed the PPAs with that make electricity so expensive for Kenyans? Yeah. Even when we are paying our own electricity, we will pay for generation of that same electricity. And part of it, we will be paying for diesel, for the power that has been generated by diesel. But the thing is, what percentage of energy generation comes from non-renewable energy? And the thing is, if electricity has become so expensive because, for instance, with the renewable energy projects like now the Trukana windmills and so forth, if they're so expensive, then how have they considered insurance, for example? If we are to come up with models, it will be the models that we use in agricultural insurance where it is informed by the changes in weather patterns or climate changes and so forth. So when the weather is not favorable, then it triggers a smart contract and so forth. So some of these things, and I would want to say that we have the solutions. It's just that sometimes, as you mentioned somehow in a question, you who do you go to? And sometimes you go to someone, they say, oh, that's a good idea. And no one ever looks at it. But if we could have a group of individuals who have the interest of our country at heart, and they can look at all these suggestions that are being forwarded, then they can see what works and what doesn't work. And then they engage Kenyans to solve their own problems. Thank you. Indeed. It's always a question of aligning incentives and aligning interests, isn't it? Kenya's a lovely country, plenty of talent, but... Getting things to work, that's a pretty herculean task. Professor, right. you're getting the last word on this one. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm happy that we are discussing this economic issue. Because one of the best things that has happened in this country, in my opinion, in the last maybe 50 years, is that in the run-up to 2022 polls, the main issue was economics. For the first time, we didn't look at the race, we didn't look at the tribe, we looked at the economic issues. And I think that's a very clear indicator that this country is coming of age. So even when we get a new president, a new regime, I hope we should always make economy at the forefront, not politics. So what should I tell the new policymakers? One of them is that they must rely on the market work. That is why Kenya is almost of a producing power, and you can see the, the cost of power is up. If we let the market work, the cost of power would be much lower. So the markets have worked, they can work, and you should allow them to work. And all of you can remember what happened in 1990 when the economy was liberalized, when the politics was liberalized. That's why we enjoy so much freedom, so much democracy. And that's why we have a lot of choices when it goes to the market. So let the markets work. For the policymakers, they must be realistic. They must not rely on illusions. 
And that is why when uh, we got the results of who is going to win and who is not going to win, let me not be more political. But whoever was more realistic is the one who won the presidency. And they must be bold. They must make decisions that are bold. They must not be covered by noisemakers and so on because there's many of them. And they must demonstrate. If they have to communicate to the voters, the citizens, then they must demonstrate the benefits that are going to come out of their decisions, both in the long term and the short term. And they must use a language that people understand. And very important, they must remember that as politicians, as policymakers, we voted them not to enjoy themselves, but to solve the national problems. That one should be the starting point. They must take responsibility for the problems that they found in office and for the problems that are going to crop up. After all, it is through solving problems that heroes are made. Indeed, I don't think I can find better words on which to, to wrap up this particular space. Politicians certainly need to get down to work and solve all the problems that we have in this little corner of East Africa. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to all our speakers today. Ken Apala from Georgetown University, Dixon Magetra joining us all the way from Dubai, Dr. Lucy Modoni, uh, Asante Sana for your time from uh, Strathmore University, and Professor Exxon Iraqi from uh, the University of Nairobi. And for our audience, Asante Sana for tuning in, listening to us, and giving us your feedback and your opinions and questions on our Twitter timelines. Asante Sana. 